Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, if we don't get what this text is about already, then I don't know what to do. Your steadfast love endures forever. Let us in these moments not consider that we think we have that figured out. No matter what point we are walking in our relationship with Christ, whether we have a short period of time we can look back on and say, I can see the steadfast love of the Lord, or perhaps even a much longer period of time and say, I can see the steadfast love of the Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness in that. But we thank you, Lord, that this, though it sounds as though it is past-oriented, there is future grace and future love for us to be in awe of this morning. pray that you would teach us by your spirit, that you would empower us, that you would lead us, you would encourage us, that you would meet us at the very need of each individual heart here through your word, and that you would unify us in our response to your steadfast and perfect 
love. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we talked about parallelism as a pattern in Hebrew poetry. That being the idea of using two lines to build an idea through an initial statement, followed by a second statement that either repeats, or rather, that repeats and often expands upon the original idea. You'll see this in Psalm 136 if you haven't already. But you'll also see a refrain repeated 26 times after every single line of the psalm. This psalm follows a poetic pattern put up right here, A, B, C, C, B, A. So we'll see an intro. You see uh, the psalmist speaking of God in creation, followed by him speaking of redemption, and then another portion of redemption, speaking again to creation in verse 25, and then concluding once again in verse 26. So there's a clear-cut pattern and intentional purpose in how the psalmist is writing here. The psalm is further intentional in that that refrain that we've heard now more than 26 times, since I've already said his steadfast love endures forever yet again, that refrain being repeated 26 times is also intentional because 26 is the numerical value of the name of God. So it doesn't take long to see that the intention of this song is to magnify God, to magnify his love, and to call people to do a couple of things in response. We'll get to that in a moment. First, I want to ask, why do we sing? In our day-to-day life, we may sing because a silly jingle has been stuck in our head, as Ross alluded to earlier today. We get, what did you call them, earworms? Earworms. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Jingles from dumb commercials that you wish you could forget. Songs, for me, especially from the mid to late 90s and early 2000s that I just don't know what is the purpose of keeping some of these songs stuck in my head. We may sing because we are bored. We may sing because we are encouraged, because we are sad. There's all sorts of different reasons. When it comes to singing to and about the Lord, we do it as a reaction of joy. We do it as a communal form of praise, as it is something we can share in together, regardless of our talent or regardless of our focus. If we all sing loud enough, no one will hear me standing in the back. So please sing loud. We sing because it is a worthy response to the love of God and what he has done for us in Christ. Singing also tells us something about our heart. I may come into church not really feeling like singing. And I can recognize that the very thing I need in order to realign my heart with the joy of the Lord is to do nothing less than lift up my voice, even against my own will if necessary. Singing tells me something of where my heart is before the Lord. Singing is a means of unifying the body of Christ. It helps us to reinforce the gospel in our minds and our attitudes. The book of Psalms, of course, multiple times, doesn't take you long to realize that there is an an imperative statement to sing to the Lord, to raise your voices, to make a loud noise, a loud shout before the Lord. Zephaniah 3.17 is a cool one to come across in your daily reading of the book of Zephaniah. Can't even really tell you the last time I read Zephaniah. But anyway, Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst. You just stopped right there for a second. That's a pretty good reason to sing, right? If you really grasped that, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. Remember, we've talked multiple weeks now of the, um, the past, present, and future tense of salvation. 
And so this idea of will saving for us as we see in Christ is that one day we will be perfectly brought into his presence, into his kingdom entirely. Again, he says further, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's God that Zephaniah is talking about. Rejoicing over you, his covenant people in Christ, with loud singing. If for no other reason you ought to sing loud on a Sunday morning because it is exactly what God is doing over you. In the New Testament, Paul calls us in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. So there's an expression of our thanks to the Lord in how and why we sing Next, in Ephesians 5.19, Paul again tells the church to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Not simply because you can't get that commercial's jingle out of your head, are you singing it and hoping that eventually it will go away, as, as was said earlier, that if you get to the end of it, right? If you get to the end of that jingle, hopefully it'll go away. This is not a, an intellectual interaction with the Lord. This is a worshipful expression of a heart recognizing the love of God and wanting to return that to him. And I could tell you from my own personal testimony that I was not always a singer. I know that's surprising because some of you have heard me and just thought, you must have been practicing and training. No. I've not always been so inclined to stand and lift my voice in church and then one day I realized some of these things from Scripture. And I realized that if God's telling me to do it, it probably is something that's good for me to do. Even if just only for the sake of obedience. But beyond that, for the increase of my joy. So again, I implore you, sing loudly so that I will disappear in the background. Because I'm going to sing loudly every single Sunday. Because he is worthy of that, whether I feel like it or not. So singing is not meant to simply be the hobby of some in the body of Christ. But as we are able, we walk in obedience by singing and finding in that singing an expression of the word of Christ dwelling in us and a platform on which to unify with other believers before the Lord. That's why so much Christian music over history has been created for multitudes of people to sing together to unify their voices lifting up. Instrumentation is great, and I'm, thankful, I'm so thankful. What a great time to plug how awesome it is that we have three really talented musical teams in the church. You guys need to recognize how, what a gift that is. And that the reason that they are a gift is because they can help usher us into the presence of God. One of my most embarrassing moments of life was when I was at Malone and I was doing my preaching class and we were meant to create, as it were, a worship service. You know, one student was required to do that each week in the class. And so when my week came, not knowing anyone on campus, not knowing any of the singers really, I just decided, okay, I'm just going to get up there and I'm going to sing that first note as loud as I can and hope that everybody else joins in. And you know what happened? Nobody. I mean, I sang something like Blessed Assurance. There was no excuse. A bunch of theology students should know Blessed Assurance. 
and nobody joined with me. And I became this small in this crowd of students. There were probably 30 students with me. And it made me wonder, is there a great need for us to, to have something? Is it, is it really about us fitting, fitting music into our mold of our understanding of what it ought to be? Or do we take it as an opportunity to lift our voices before the God who saved us and loves us with a steadfast and never-ending love? Amen. It's a great opportunity to do that. Well, in this refrain that we have repeated, for his steadfast love endures forever, we have a phrase that comes from a very important word that you may already know in the Hebrew is the word hesed. And the word translated in various ways is used to describe God's mercy or his kindness or his love. But as regards to the passage today, um, Ian Duguid, a pastor and professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, how about that for a title? I like that I can just say, I'm the pastor in the Cross Point Church. Anyway, he says this about what hesed means. The most precious use of the word hesed in the Old Testament is a description of what God does. Having entered a covenant relationship with his people, God bound himself to act toward them in certain ways. And he is utterly faithful to his self-commitment. That is a pretty awesome definition. That is fantastic because I so often base whether I want to express steadfast love to my wife, to my kids, to my family, to my friends, to my church. I often base that off of my emotions and my situation in life. And if something's going wrong, I'd rather you know that that thing's going wrong in my life than for me to have to go out of my comfort zone and pretend like I'm excited to see you. That might have been a little bit too raw. I hope you can resonate with it. I hope that what you're hearing in that is that the natural inclination of my heart is so self-centered and turned so inward that I must rely on the grace of Christ moment by moment by moment to respond to his faithful covenant-based love and to express that to others. If you know someone who is just, and we do, you do because there are people that I'm talking to right now who express this love in a great way in your midst. It is not because we are naturally inclined that way. You can't excuse yourself from it by saying that, oh, that's just how that person is. The way we love God, the way we love each other ought to be in response to this hesed love that God has for us that is never failing. It is based on this thing. Look what it's based on. He's utterly faithful to what? His self-commitment. Should remind you of a passage in 1 Timothy that I can't recall exactly the address of. But when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. Amen. He cannot deny himself. He could deny us if he wanted to, and he wouldn't be wrong to do it. But when he has brought us into the covenant relationship that is available to us through Christ, he cannot deny that he himself has said, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy. And when we sing and we say, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. It's an expression of what God has committed to us. And it is real day by day by day. And if you ever doubt that God loves you because maybe you don't understand how someone could faithfully love perfectly day by day because we're so bogged down by emotions, if you can't get that concept, then get this concept that God is never going to break a promise 
He's never going to walk outside of a covenant that he's committed to. And so if it were even possible that God could have a bad day and think towards his people, oh, I don't really feel like loving them. Remember, this is so hypothetical, it'll never happen. But even if that were the case, he would always still have his Hesed covenant love to fall back on. We would always have that confidence that God will not deny himself. Don't need to rely on your pleasing God. Christ has pleased him in his sacrifice and his resurrection, and you are the beneficiaries of that, which is later. So slow down. Okay. All right. So when we read here of God's steadfast love, we're talking about his covenant faithful love that he will never turn from. So in that we followed a theme of temptation last week in Psalm 141, this week, we look at Psalm 136 and consider our response to the love of God. So here we find not explicitly a list of instructions on how to do that, but rather what we see are great reasons for why we respond to the love of God and how, rather, we ought to do that as we look at his character. The psalmist puts this psalm forth as a means to respond to the love of God with three actions. They're not in your outline, so I would implore you, if the outline means anything to you today, to write down these three words. Very simple. And you can write it down even if the outline still doesn't mean anything to you. Um, the three actions that I, that I think we see in Psalm 136 is, of course, first of all, that we give thanks. So we thank him. Secondly, we praise him. And thirdly, we proclaim him. We thank him, we praise him, and we proclaim him. And those are the things that, again, the psalmist is not saying, well, he does say specifically with giving thanks, but he doesn't necessarily call us to praise or call us to proclamation, but he's doing that in the writing of the song. And something else that's unique about this, the format of this psalm is that it was designed for congregational singing. And you can probably recognize that as soon as you see the repetition of the refrain each time. It was meant to be sung by the congregation. The leader would be singing, and that's why we didn't share in it, because I would have to sing it. And I don't know the tune. That's the only reason. But the congregation would respond to all of these, all these truths about God and his covenant faithfulness with, for his steadfast love endures forever. Through this, the people of God are invited to and given the means to do all these things as they ponder the God of steadfast love. So, firstly, the sovereign God of steadfast love. So we're going to move through these characteristics, these five characteristics of God. Those will be our signposts for this week. It is one of the most assumed and overlooked and even misunderstood attributes of God that we see in the beginning of this, that we give thanks to him. Why? What is the purpose for giving thanks to the Lord in the very first verse? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. There is a song for that. Yeah. <laughs> Verse 1 calls us to look at the goodness of God. When we say that God is good, we ought to consider whether we mean what the Bible means, what it says, when it says that God is good, or if we are coming up with our own understanding of goodness. The Bible speaks of God's moral purity. That is to say that he is holy and righteous, the Bible speaks of his integrity, that is to say his genuineness, his truthfulness, and his faithfulness. And finally, his love. The Bible speaks of God's goodness and his love, that being his benevolence, being his grace, and his mercy, and his persistence, which has especially been highlighted for me in this past week as I've looked at this, to consider his persistence through the history of what we see in Psalm 136, that he has never failed to express his steadfast love. 
And this all being according to his standard, not ours. The basic fact of goodness when it comes to God is that God is not good because he adheres to a standard outside of himself, but rather that through his words and his actions, he sets the standard for goodness. Because everything he does is good and right and true and pure and holy and lovely and perfect. Everything that he does. So when he gives commandments, you shall have no other God before me, it's not as though he's sitting there thinking, what should I have Moses write? Uh, looking through his library, trying to find a book on morality. Rather, he says, this is what is right because it's an expression of who I am. Because the whole universe centers around who God is. And we get things mixed up when we decide that it centers around who we are instead. God is also, in this first section of verses 1 through 3, called the God of gods and the Lord of lords. This is not an admission from Scripture that there are, in fact, other gods who truly exist, but rather is to say that just as God has proved himself greater than the so-called gods of Egypt through the plagues and the exodus, so no other imagined god could compare to Yahweh. Consider even that great moment in Exodus 8.19, where after the coming of the gnats, the magicians of Pharaoh even give up on mimicking the miracles. And they ultimately say, it says that the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. See sovereignty in there too. Hopefully you can pick up on that towards the end. Just as the Lord said, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So the magicians had been doing all they could to comfort Pharaoh that Yahweh is not anything special. We have our own gods. We have access to those gods. I can make frogs come out of the Nile. I can turn the, the Nile into blood. I can do all those things. Don't worry about it. They got to a point where they said, look, this is the finger of God. I mean, the gig's up. You know, they pulled the curtain behind and they found the Wizard of Oz and there was nothing left to be said. Exhausting their abilities and efforts, they confess what ought to have come from the mouth of Pharaoh himself. This is the finger of God. Look at the power of the God of gods in the Exodus. Look what he can do with the lowest of, of us when we consider the whole of Scripture. Everyone that he calls, even in, in the Exodus, who did he call to be the leader of God's people? Some guy named Moses. He was a runaway murderer. And God chose him and selected him. And the whole of scripture then follows over and over again, God using unexpected means for his glory. You might consider even the Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John. We proclaim him to a world that just doesn't know him. He's sovereign in the amazing signs and wonders and in his working through unexpected people because his steadfast love endures forever. Next, let's consider the wonder of the God of steadfast love in verses 4 through 9. So the psalmist leads us into this concept of wonder in the context of God's creation. And here we find echoes of Genesis in this portion of the psalm. Let's look at it verse 4, and I'll, I'll skip the refrain here for the sake of time. To him who alone does great wonders, to him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night. It sounds like the beginning of Genesis, doesn't it? When he talks about the heavens, he's referring to a threefold understanding of what is above humanity. The atmosphere of the earth being the first heaven, 
The second heaven being outer space. And then the third heaven being the eternal dwelling of God. So when you see that in the Old Testament, when somebody writes and they talk about the God of the heavens or the heavens declaring, they may very well be referring to this, this um, Old Testament understanding of atmosphere, outer space, and the eternal dwelling of God. Speaking of, of space, here comes a bunch of useless facts. Are you ready for this? I was actually most excited about this part. In our Milky Way galaxy, there are over 100 billion stars. It is said that besides our galaxy, there are somewhere between 100 and 200 billion galaxies. It's a staggering number. If we wanted to travel to just one of those other galaxies, it would only take a measly 745 million years to get to the closest one. To get to the end of the known universe, take a little bit longer, 225 trillion years. The Lord spread out the earth above the waters, the psalmist says. By the way, the oceans make up 71% of the planet. 50 to 80% of all life on the planet dwells under the sea. Humanity has only explored less than 10% of these waters. There are more historical facts underwater, and I'm sorry, more historical artifacts underwater than in all the museums on the planet. And the largest mountain chain in the world is also underwater. In his sovereignty, the Lord appointed the sun and the moon to rule the day and night, the writer says. The sun in all of its glory is over one million times the size of Earth. It runs at temperatures reaching 15 million degrees Celsius. The moon is smaller than the sun. Did you know that? <laughs> I read that sentence over and over again, and I was like, this seems silly. But think about this. The, the moon is 400 times smaller than the sun, but it appears to be similar in size if you compare them just visually. It appears to be similar in size because it is also 400 times closer to the earth. It is interesting, isn't it? These are simple Google search facts that you can look up anytime. I mean, I literally just said, tell me about the sun. And I, I got these really interesting things. But ultimately, if we were to settle our minds for a second on these things, I think it should lead us to ask with the psalmist in another place when he says, who are we that you should be mindful of us? This vast creation that spans the galaxies far beyond what we could ever even imagine. And then even on our own planet, we act as though we have this figured out. We've only explored less than 10% of the ocean. It's incredible. We are nothing. The God whom we worship created all of that. And that God has been faithful and steadfast love to his people for all this time because of Christ. Even before Jesus set foot on the earth in his incarnation, the Bible says the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world. And so why is it that he forgives, that he offers to Abraham this covenant relationship? Why does he forgive David of his sin with Bathsheba? Why does he remain faithful to his people in exile? Because he knew what Christ would come to do. And it was so impacting that it not only worked forward in time, but it worked backward in time as well. Because God himself lives outside of it. 
Psalm 8, 3 through 4 may be familiar to you. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Who, who are we? We're just a small blip. Our, our life is like a vapor, the word says. We, we are here one day and then gone the next. And yet, in our smallness, in our seemingly insignificance, God has decided to reach out to you with the most extent, the, the furthest extent of his love possible by offering you his son. Amen. He's not simply sent you a postcard in the mail. He wants to be in perfect relationship with his creation. And us, wow, that should stagger us. That should humble us. Hear from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 as well. To go further into this idea, that's not it. That's still the psalm. Okay. Hey, you know what? It's a good thing to open up your Bibles every once in a while, right? Y'all know where Ephesians is? Take a look at it, if you will, if you have a Bible. I guess I forgot to say there are Bibles on the back table. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and hear from verses 1 through 10. Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walk, walked, he's speaking to believers, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil, by the way. He's a bad guy. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Yikes. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, that mercy that is greater than our sin, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Who are we that God should be mindful of us? We are the objects of such great love that brings out of spiritual death makes us alive again together with Christ, raises us, seats us with Christ, and he plans to show us his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine for a moment that moment that you will be with him perfectly and your eyes will be opened and begin to behold for the rest of eternity the immeasurable riches of his grace? of his great kindness in Christ Jesus. I mean, I hope that you reading this section of scripture does that a little bit right now. I hope it whets your appetite such that you want more and that you look forward to that revelation of the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us in Christ. Somehow we become dissatisfied with this great God and his great love. Somehow we look to other things to bring satisfaction. And we so easily forget who this God is. This God who has loved us with such a faithful and steadfast love. We seek to find wonder in the creation, and we forget the creator himself. His is not a love that dispassionately offers a sign of generosity, 
Rather, he redeems us with such a dramatic and world-altering action at the cross that a response cannot be anything less than life-changing as well. If we've truly heard the gospel, you cannot remain the same as you were before you heard it. If we've caught even a glimpse of the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, we wouldn't be able to do anything else in our days but respond to his love in every way we could. However, Paul says that's for the ages to come. Respond in thanks, respond in praise, and proclamation over the wonder of the God of steadfast love. Thirdly, we see the strength of the God of steadfast love. So we're looking at now verse 10 through 22. If you remember in the poetic outline, we're actually looking at verses 10 through 22 as two separate stories of redemption going all the way back here. And I know I'm going to mess myself up, but I want you to see the pattern one more time. There it is. Okay, so we're here at that first C, redemption 10 through 22, redemption again at 23 through 24. So we're going to see two different um, sort of tales of redemption here momentarily. So verse 10 takes a seemingly dark turn as we consider the strength of the God of steadfast love. Look at verse 10 once more. Oh boy, I'm still in Ephesians, man. Back up. Verse 10 of Psalm 136 says, To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Yikes. If I were writing a psalm to be sung by the congregation and wanted to include elements of the Exodus, I might not choose to start with such a dark imagery from the story. What we see in that is that God takes passionate and amazing measures to redeem his people. We're going to sing at the end of our, our time here the song called Reckless Love, which has caused a lot of really good conversation over thinking about the reckless love of God. Is that something we can call God's love? Can it truly be reckless? Well, certainly by strictest definition, if we say that God's love is reckless as though he is foolish or he is, he is um, idiotic in the way that he loves us, well, that's certainly incorrect. But if we take this understanding of looking at the love of God as one who leaves behind 99 sheep to save another, to save one, it does sound kind of reckless, doesn't it? And the amazing thing is, is that he loses not one of his sheep, not one of his people. But at any rate, he's willing to go to extreme lengths to save his people. He's passionate about saving his people. So let's consider what was happening in the story of Exodus at this time in verse 10, verse 10's reference here, rather. <clears throat> As we read Pharaoh's response from Exodus 8, his response was the same throughout the first nine plagues. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and according to even Exodus 10.1 and Exodus 11.10, God hardened Pharaoh's heart as well in order that he might accomplish the fullness of the signs of his power. God's response to Pharaoh's hardening his own heart was to further harden Pharaoh's heart. So, so there's a sense that Pharaoh saw the first of the signs and, and hardened his heart, and God's response to that was to say, okay, you want a hard heart? I can help you with that. Pretty terrifying. Good. Exodus 11.1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. And that is, of course, this plague that is mentioned in verse 10 for us. In his sovereignty, the Lord knew what the breaking point would be for Pharaoh. He knew from the beginning of the negotiations. If you consider Exodus 4.22, 
way back before this all started, he said to, to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The threat was made. And Pharaoh let his stubbornness blind him to the strength of Yahweh, and he ended up crushed underneath that strength. Like Pharaoh, to bring it to where we are today, like Pharaoh, multitudes of people live life day by day, rejecting the evidence of the powerful God that we find in creation. Romans 1 tells us that, that we can look outside and see creation and understand a God of power and a God of justice. People reject their need to be made right with him through Christ. And should they continue in their hard-heartedness, they too experience the judgment of God. Believer, proclaiming the steadfast love of God, available to all who believe, is an imperative element to responding to God's love in our own hearts. If your heart doesn't break for the lost, it may not only be carelessness towards them, but it may be a warning that you may not have actually received the steadfast love of God for yourself. The psalmist introduced this section with the striking down of the firstborn because it represents to the nation of Israel the turning point in the story of the Exodus. There in the darkest place of the story was the only place Pharaoh's hard heart would submit to Yahweh. And there Israel was released to quickly make an escape from Egypt. There was the proof of the Lord's strong hand, the outstretched arm of the God of gods and the Lord of lords. As we consider this 10th plague, this, this very dark and sad portion where, where Israel was able to escape that last plague through the Passover, through the, the putting of blood over the doorposts over their house so that the angel of death would pass by, really makes the first nine plagues look like a mercy. Were they judgment on, it, on Egypt? Absolutely. But they were also an opportunity each time for Pharaoh to repent. He never did. They were the delay of the Lord's just judgment on the one who took from him his people, whom he calls his firstborn. In the Old Testament believer's mind, the exodus was to them what the cross of Christ is to us today. To get an idea of the weightiness of this, you can go to Colossians 1.15 where we have a description of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, I don't want you to be confused by the use of the term firstborn here, because Christ was never truly born as though he did not exist and then suddenly he did. He was born on this earth as the God-man who was the Son of God and added to his divinity, humanity, in the incarnation, in the Christmas story. But what's being talked about here as the term firstborn is, is that it rather holds the place of the inheritor of creation in the way one who is the firstborn of a family would inherit the larger portion of the family's land. Just a chapter later in Colossians 2 verse 9, Paul will say that in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, which is a great sign to, to Jesus' eternality and equal equality with the Father, rather. Then we go to Romans 8, 16 through 17, still following this track of inheritance and firstborn. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
we are called heirs with Christ in this passage. This saving God in his strength is the God of his people, saving them in his might, temporarily at the exodus and eternally at the cross of Christ because his steadfast love endures forever. The reason that Israel can be called the firstborn way back here in Exodus is again because Christ is the true firstborn of Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God. He's eternal with God, but he holds the place of firstborn of all creation, the one who is to rightly inherit all of creation. And this term of, of calling the, the firstborn Israel in the, in the book of Exodus looks forward to this and finds its completion in this. Well, what does that mean? It means that God's people will share in the inheritance of Christ. That's pretty fantastic. So, verse 16 now, back to Psalm 136. Verse 16, in a way, leads into verses 17 and 22 as sort of a part two of God's salvation story. In that it was under the leadership of Moses that we see in Numbers 21, the kings Sion of the Amorites and Og of Bashan, both defeated in their opposition to the nation Israel. So if you want to know more about that story, Numbers 21 is the place to go. These were those kings who would not bow before the Lord of Lords as Pharaoh would not, and they paid dearly for it by opposing his people. To oppose the people of God is to oppose the Lord of Lords and the God of God's. Consider the great enemy of your soul. Consider sin. Further, consider your part in submitting to temptation and giving free reign to sin. In Ephesians 2 that we read that, that said that we were dead in trespasses and sins was not because we were completely simply victims, but because we partake in sin actively and willingly day by day. And yet, according to his steadfast love, determined long ago, he does not crush us in his justice as criminals. Rather, through Christ, he makes us his own and defeats the ultimate enemy of sin. Verses 23 and 24 show us the compassion of the God of steadfast love. Here it says, he rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. He gives food to all flesh. Puritan Thomas Watson wrote in his book, The Mischief of Sin, Christians, you who are vessels of election were by nature as wicked as others, but God had compassion on you and plucked you as brands out of the fire. He stopped you in your course of sinning when you were marching to hell. He turned you back to him by sincere repentance. Oh, here is the banner of love displayed over you. Full extent of salvation, the full extent of his love to bring you from a wandering position of evil and wickedness and spiritual deadness into new life in Christ. We began looking at the beginning of the psalm, looking at God's goodness. And then we just saw how his justice towards his enemies and all of evil will be satisfied and perfected. And the psalmist brings us to a God of compassion. The compassion is directed towards his people, but not because of any innate goodness or worthiness on their own. Depending on the timing of the psalm, verses 23 and 24 could either be referring simply to the act of salvation that he already mentioned, or they could be referring to the post-exilic return to Jerusalem. Either way, it's a reminder of the compassion of the God of steadfast love that causes him to do what he does in favor towards his people. 
He does not work on our behalf because we have earned, deserved, or somehow merited such wonderful favor. Rather, God's people have always been those in lowly estate. They were enslaved in Egypt, and they're enslaved to sin. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And when he heard the groaning of the Israelites in Exodus 2.24, I tell you today, he has not forgiven, forgotten, pardon me, he has not forgotten any one of his sheep because he has not lost a single one of them. In rescuing his people from their foes, he displays his great love, his faithful love, his covenant love, his steadfast love. His compassion shows his people that he keeps his promises. And for us, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. When we finish praying, we say amen. We are saying that we believe God for his promises. We are saying that we agree that the Lord answers his promises, that the Lord is faithful, and that he is a God of compassion. Lastly, verses 25 and 26 show us the provision of the God of steadfast love. This sovereign God of wonder, strength, and compassion has a boundless supply of provision for all needs. He has no need for anything from us. Perhaps most strikingly in the Old Testament are his words in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit trembles at my word. All that the Lord has created is a mere footstool before him. In his kindness, he pours out his provision by giving food to all flesh. He is kind to the whole of his creation. His church, being the ones ransomed by the blood of Christ, are charged to point to this Lord of Lords as the one truly worthy of all glory and worthy of all praise, the one before whom every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May we be those who are humble and contrite. May we be in awe of who he is and what he has done. May we respond in worship by giving thanks to him praising him for who he is and proclaiming all he has done. Even though our sins are many, his mercy is more. He chose to save his people before they were even created. He was faithful to his promises and his plan, even though we were once enemies of God. He's faithful to us day by day, even in our weakness before him. For his faithful, merciful, powerful, steadfast, hesed, covenant faithful love endures forever a couple of reflection thoughts for you as we pray for a moment before we sing our last song. Just two things. I'd ask you today, what particularly of the attributes of God leads you to thank, praise, remember, and proclaim him? Secondly, what means has he equipped you with? And what place has he put you in to respond to his love in thanksgiving, praise, remembrance, and proclamation? What might motivate you to walk in this response to this wonderful, amazing love of God? And where are you where that can be expressed in a way that shows thanksgiving, praise, remembrance, and proclamation, particularly to those who do not know 